This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is uh, Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Issa Blumi, thank you for joining me in the trenches. How's Beirut treating you? Uh, well, I would say it's abusing, the abusing for all of us who find ourselves in this otherwise beautiful city, but um, I, I can't complain. I'm rather privileged uh, coming from the outside with some extra dollars to, uh, to exchange at the black market rate, but it's pretty rough here. Um, they've been undergoing economic warfare and all kinds of pressure has been applied on people here to capitulate and to behave as as I call empire um, expects them to. How, how rough is it there? Uh, well, on top of the million and a half uh, Syrian refugees who have been flooding in um, for the last 10 years to the country, um, they are, of course, the Palestinian, enduring Palestinian presence who live in uh, horrible squalor in the camps that were allocated to them since already 48. Um, sure. uh, the this horrible wars in the 1980s, uh, 1990s, the occupation in, in large parts of southern Lebanon until 2006, when finally Hezbollah however, were able to uh, force the Israeli occupation forces out. Uh, that has certainly ruined the economy 25 times over. Um, every, every time there is a rebuilding of a power plant or a, a, a water treatment plant, Israel um, bombs it, that infrastructure. Um, and so the country is left in the hands of a couple of oligarchs who didn't have enough of making money of rebuilding the cities, uh, getting with uh, gold financing. They have now plundered the banking system entirely in 2019. A scandalous uh, um, disappearance of everyone's savings in, uh, in Lebanese banks has led to the the rise of the poverty level to I think seventy by seventy percent or so, and Gee. so people have lost everything that they had in their bank accounts, and uh, they're, they're, uh, if they are have, uh, lucky enough to work, their salaries have been significantly reduced as the um, official uh, rate of exchange continues to be one thousand five hundred. Lira, black market is now 24,000 plus. So just it imagine is. if you have a fixed salary that you've just been completely gutted. Uh, the country is does benefit from um, a diaspora, which has been scattered for the last hundred some years throughout the world. I assume even some in Southern Africa, but Africa is certainly a destination of many Lebanese, uh, especially Western Africa, Francophone Afrique. Uh, they, they've taken advantage of their connection with the French Empire to serve as intermediaries in the plundering of West Africa's natural resources. But even you find them in Nigeria and then throughout Latin America and, mm -hmm. of course, North America. So it's, it's, a, it's a story of those who have connections to family um, abroad who can send $200 a month is enough uh, to make the difference. <coughs> Um, the uh, generally impoverished in the South, however, are, are completely uh, destroyed by the continued economic embargo that the Americans have led to try to force Lebanese to abandon their affiliations with Hezbollah and uh, like-minded parties here in Lebanon, uh, part of a larger campaign to uh, destroy any resistance to um, the West as it applies uh, 
its interest through Israel or through um, puppet regimes that you find scattered throughout the region as well. So it's a story that very much mirrors some parts of uh, the other global south, the larger global south, uh, but also quite unique in, in many ways. So. What is your background? I am an Albanian. Uh, father is Albanian. Mother is uh, mixed Bosnian-German heritage. I was born in Czechoslovakia. And uh, my father was expelled from his homeland when he was 18, ended up in Turkey, where most Muslims of the Balkans were ended up if they were expelled by their states. And then as a guest worker, ended up in Germany, where one romantic uh, evening he met my mother in West Berlin. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's my, my, my beginning story. And then my mother and I left as immigrants to uh, the West, first to uh, Canada and then the U.S. Uh, by the looks of things, you're in a better position now than, than if you were in Canada. Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm grateful for it. <laughs> it's, it's a love-hate <laughs> relationship I have with uh, growing up in the United States. I grew up at a time where you could actually uh, work from the bottom up I, I unloaded trucks. I, I, you know, I broke open uh, uh, parking meters I, to get a couple of things to buy some food. And but I also had a unique background, and that gave me some um, some interesting um, exchanges with teachers all along, who were quite fascinated by my story. I was very different from my African American and um, Latino uh, classmates, and then. Fortunately, my mother took me to New York at some point, and similarly, I got this uh, quizzical uh, looks at, from my teachers, who then made sure that uh, I got special attention or something. So it's 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 an interesting uh, paradoxical uh, relationship with a society that is very racist and has uh, lots of barriers for uh, social uh, climbing, even for people of my class which was again working class. My mother worked as a waitress in the airport and did all kinds of other things. But we were able, at least at that stage in the, the history of the middle of, let's say, uh, of, of empire for working class to actually work hard and go into university and then end up being a PhD and traveling the world on, you know, on a shoestring and um, using their skill sets to engage the world in different ways and actually start coming up with very different approaches to understanding the relationship our homelands have with, with empire, which I think resonated until very recently. There was a space yeah. for us to speak, but now it's increasingly difficult as coronavirus has imposed a certain kind of ethos on how you are to behave in public spaces, uh, both intellectually as well as just physically, right, with your mask and you have to show your, your vaccinated on that. And that applies to politics, obviously, now in even more uh, uh, harsh terms uh, with this war in Ukraine as an example. And where is uh, home? Home is uh, I'm here in Beirut for the next uh, several months. Been here already since uh, January, early January. Uh, it's a research opportunity, oh. but I'm based in Stockholm University in Stockholm, Sweden. Yeah, well, uh, my question was more philosophical in terms of like yeah. home is where the heart is. So where would that be? Uh, with the brothers and sisters who are struggling, uh, whether it be in uh, the trenches or um, organizing uh, street demonstrations or sending food to their brothers and sisters in prison um, who can't get out. So that's that's home. Uh, and that's why I feel very much at home, a place like this. There's a lot of people struggling for all the right reasons. Yeah. 
You mentioned skill set. What is uh, what is yours? Uh, languages able to interpret text to uh, defy uh, the uh, the orthodoxy that is expected of uh, up and coming uh, scholars who want a career. Um, I have mm. not been rewarded with Harvard or Chicago or or uh, Cambridge, but there's a reason, and I'm actually um, happy that um, I don't have to uh, play that and parrot uh, the discourse that. Uh, empowers further uh, empire through uh, academic channels. So uh, that skill set is to also have the guts to stand up and, and surrender your career for something else. And Stockholm University is, is happy with that? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I think they, 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 I've been brought on, that's how academia is. Sometimes uh, you fall through the cracks. Mm. The screening process is less vigorous, but I've been told on several occasions that I should uh, mind my words in the classes I teach on the Middle East, especially in regards to Israel. So that tells me that the, there is a conformity uh, expected even in seemingly open-minded Scandinavia. And I think that is applied also to how one so socially interacts regarding the recent events. Although I have not been there since COVID, I think I've, I've, monitored, I've observed that there's a certain expectation. You're at a certain class level, you're supposed to um, interact in certain ways and um, believe certain things. Um, but for now, I'm, I'm alhamdulillah, I'm not uh, being pressured to, uh, to leave um, as in other places I was. So. Whether it's a good or bad thing, I, I don't know, but suddenly Yemen matters. Why? Yeah, that is a very interesting question. And it actually, um, uh, for uh, the course of the war that has started in 2015, and as I've uh, tried to uh, lay out in my research over the years, um, it's actually an extended project of uh, forced uh, integration into a global economy that has matured over the last 150 years. It's certainly Southern Africa is part of as well. Mm. Um, um, but it is a war that has been strategically uh, neglected. Uh, and uh, the reason why we're actually hearing something about it now, it, it does signal that there's significant changes happening in the larger world. I, I think a lot of actors who have invested heavily in silencing the very story of Yemen, there were almost 400,000 people, who knows actually how many, uh, this, the speculation is at least 400,000 have died from various, uh, uh, due to actual war, the, the endless bombardment every day from a coalition of American aligned forces uh, to starvation, to disease, to other um, uh, indications of neglect that uh, a Northern uh, Alliance that has been put itself, pulled itself together already in the late 2010s, mid 2010s, uh, to try to re uh, resist the encroachments of imposed globalization or imposed integration into an IMF-induced regime that would have sold off Yemen's quite considerable but natural, important natural resources off for very cheap to the, the usual suspects that you find uh, throughout uh, Southern Africa, whether it be these days in Mozambique and Angola, or of course, for the last 150 years in South Africa as well. The reason why it's becoming more um, prominent in the news is largely because of the resistance. Um, indigenous peoples of, of Yemen, primarily located in the northern part of the country, what used to be called the North, North Yemen or the Yemen Arab Republic, 
before that an imamate, which had actually very intimate relations with Muslim populations all over eastern coast of Africa, all the way at least up to northern Mozambique. Uh, these places uh, have, uh, uh, again, aligned to resist uh, this uh, campaign of integration in a way that uh, made it impossible to actually pursue what was envisioned a, a quick uh, reversal of fortunes in 2014, 2015. Now, I'm not sure if you want me to go through briefly that mm. period that Please precedes do. the war itself, because it's, mm. I think, actually quite important to understand uh, the vigor of the resistance and the um, uh, the campaign to try to destroy this resistance, uh, and uh, that has failed to uh, to the point we're speaking now, and why we are actually hearing more about Yemen today. Well, firstly, the uh, uh, a dictator of choice had been long cooperative, had helped integrate Yemen um, in, in stages to uh, a globalization process, first integrating uh, northern Yemen. Uh, this is the individual named Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was a military officer who had successfully uh, staged a coup in 1978, overthrowing a very popular, um, um, uh, let's say, populist leader who was very much attuned to the, um, uh, especially the peasantry uh, and farmers. His name was Ibrahim Hamdi. Uh, he was killed and uh, with likely support from the various Western embassies that were in uh, northern Yemen at the time. Ali Abdullah Salah proceeded to uh, consolidate control uh, in a kind of classic state centralization campaign, um, mobilizing uh, various ministries to try to consolidate uh, the ability of the state to tax, to regulate how people farm. He starts to impose uh, forms of uh, exploitation of, of labor, exploitation of, of, uh, of the land, the very rich land that Yemen, northern Yemen especially enjoys. It's a very mountainous country, but uh, the monsoon rains come, uh, every, uh, come tw at least twice a year. And they, they fill uh, the cisterns and, and the wells and allows Yemenis in a very clever way to use canals to distribute water. And you have these beautiful terraced fields that are, uh, makes Yemen quite famous, looking very much like Southeast Asia often, if you see in pictures. So the rich agriculture country that was, through this dictatorship of choice, uh, coerced to, uh, to abandon self-sufficiency in food um, to pursue, as, you, as we usually associate with IMF-induced uh, regimes, uh, trying to find uh, ways to uh, generate revenue through export, from its mining resources to its food, which was no longer uh, exported in terms of uh, edible foods, but cash crops that were be industrial uh, agricultural products that could be exported for cash. And in return, uh, as many countries in the Middle East that became dependent on uh, cheap, subsidized American wheat. Uh, and the diet even changed as a result. But it also led to the uh, alienation of hundreds of thousands of Yemenis from their lands, uh, where they had traditionally for generations worked on. And so they, very much like many parts of Africa and, and the Americas, ended up migratory uh, and ended up working in the neighboring rich, oil-rich countries in the north. As petty laborers, as uh, sometimes uh, more skilled sets, police officers, uh, drivers. Uh, they were the heart and soul in many ways, much like uh, other Arabs who, Palestinians and others who had migrated to the Gulf in the 60s and 70s. In the case of the Yemenis, up throughout the 1980s, many of them settled in Saudi Arabia. 
um, essentially um, brought their whole families up there and became Saudis, culturally speaking, which is a very important component to the story about Yemen. And uh, by the time when uh, Iraq invades Kuwait and tries to address a more popular, a larger pan-Arabist uh, agenda about uh, reallocating the oil wealth concentrated in the hands of a few families in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, etc., uh, Yemen, Yemenis uh, wholeheartedly supported that campaign. As, a, as a, a poor country which had huge resources, potential for, um, uh, for great wealth, but the financing was never yet available to actually uh, navigate the very complicated politics of Yemen. Unlike the Gulf countries which had these dictatorships, these ruling families who would very conveniently avail the, uh, the lands that were necessary for exploration and then the pumping of natural gas or oil, in Yemen you would have to deal with the, uh, the village level politics all the way th uh, through the process of exploration as well as then um, extraction of this wealth. And this was one of the problems that Yemen posed for the global oil industry uh, and other industries like mining and even uh, agriculture and uh, property development, is that you would have to deal with politics, which is, is a crucial um, lesson to learn about how the global uh, economy functions. Uh, what is happening with the global reset is this push to really, um, already since the late 19th century, uh, big industrialists like Rockefellers and Vanderbilts and their British um, equivalents have sought to streamline JP, it. JP Morgan as well. JP Morgan, and of course, Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, right? They all had this vision of creating a, a relationship with labor uh, that would um, maximize profitability uh, with min and minimize the amount of politics they had to would engage in. Uh, they want to eliminate the negotiation process. To eliminate the, nego the negotiation process for salaries, of course, suppress uh, the costs of, of the human labor that they always had to uh, acquire in order to exploit and extract from uh, the, the larger world, but also the politics that comes with, you know, this is our land. Yeah. And with the Gulf, the model with the British established was we're just going to crown someone, uh, a prince or an emir, and he is going to be the official dictator who's going to, who's going to rule from a pyramid schema they could not do that with Yemen, even with their dictator of choice. He himself had to deal with domestic politics. And so there was a variety of negotiation processes, a lot of filters from which state power had to go through. And this became very cumbersome. And so Yemen is one of those few places, at least in the Arab world, um, to some extent, uh, in some parts of Lebanon, Syria, the same thing, where you, you could not just um, impose a, a system of... of integration, global integration, integration into the global economy from above. And uh, this ultimately led to uh, new measures, which included the deportation of large numbers of Yemenis back to Yemen in the early 1990s as punishment for supporting Saddam Hussein's uh, campaign in Kuwait, legitimate or not. And uh, the, the, the underlying consequences of that is it suddenly flooded the country with a new kind of Yemeni who had been, again, acculturated to Saudi understandings of Islam. So um, uh, upwards of 800,000 Yemenis were suddenly thrown back into a, a, a country that had been was already seeing an economic uh, de depression because of the, of the early 1990s uh, fluctuations and, and 
global pricing, all that. Uh, Yemen was not a country that could accommodate such an influx, let alone uh, such an influx who were uh, very uh, actively uh, invested in imposing their newly discovered uh, understanding of Islam uh, through Wahhabism who, um, to a society that was much more tolerant and much more um, uh, diverse uh, and where uh, so-called Sunni and Shia were living side by side and, and cohabitating and trading with each other. Suddenly, a new dynamic enters in the fray where uh, these Saudi-ized Yemenis come back and bring a very different kind of uh, uh, expectation of social relations, where uh, either you abide by the officially accepted and embraced interpretation of Islam through Saudi imams, or you are a kufar, kafir, a, a, a non-believer. And this initiated a decade of violence, sectarian violence, very synonymous to what we would see in Iraq and in Syria at least more recently. And unfortunately for Yemen, uh, it was had a lot to do with the investment by Saudi Arabia in particular. Later on, Qatar as well, who became a champion of especially the Muslim Brotherhood uh, branch of uh, ortho, uh, Muslim orthodoxy or uh, Salafism, as we would call it sometimes. And it led to significant fissures in Yemeni society. And uh, this, this dictator uh, took advantage of this. This was a window of opportunity to um, initiate a new form of uh, state power in, into the uh, very difficult, nebulous world of domestic politics and use these assets to uproot uh, points of resistance. He had, um, in 1986, met the then uh, Vice President of the United States, George H.W. Bush, who was the also former head of CIA. Um, he later became president for one term. Um, and. It was uh, during this uh, auspicious moment where he uh, shook hands with this uh, vice president of the United States who was representing American oil companies, especially Hunt Oil, uh, which is based out of Oklahoma. And that started a process by which there became now a global interest in seeing Yemen uh, unified. Because as they understood it, much of the natural resources existed in southern Yemen. And what was then a very... Uh, a formidable Marxist socialist state that remained quite independent of uh, the larger world. But by 86, it had already seen itself an internal political uh, conflict. Uh, my suspicion there may have been a hand of uh, CIA operatives in some shape or form in inducing a conflict within the Communist Party of South Yemen. What? So, the CIA? Never. The CIA would never, never do anything like that. No, the Americans are completely uh, focused on, on, of course, developing democracy uh, as they see fit. And they want to see Yemenis actually um, uh, participate in this process. So uh, 1990s is full of uh, sectarian conflict. Uh, a, a leader um, who had successfully coerced or uh, 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 duped Southern Yemenis in that period of, of marginalization. Remember, this is the end of the Cold War. There's no longer a Soviet Union that could be a patron moving forward. Uh, South Yemen was very much out on a limb, had lots of resources that was never exploited because it was too costly at the time to exploit. And here is a country that is making overtures and we can unite and become a great country, the biggest, most powerful country in all of Arabia. And we can renegotiate our place in the world accordingly. But Ali Abdel Assal actually turned out not to have such an objective. And, and not only would he try to subordinate significant portions of his own population in the north, 
he would apply similar tactics in South Yemen to the point where there was actually a civil, so-called civil war in 1994. Uh, two countries were, uh, who were basically the same country were shooting Scud missiles at each other and it ended up uh, very badly for those from South Yemen who um, have not forgotten that period. Um, they've seen their part of the world uh, change um, forever uh, with the uh, use of colonization from the north, especially of these radicalized Takfiri Salafi um, uh, northern Yemenis who brought their uh, their, uh, their whole families and got uh, chief uh, credits to establish and take over communities from Aden, the former capital of South Yemen, all the way to Mahra, which is on the borders with uh, Oman. And so Yemen, uh, southern Yemen transformed dramatically at the same time as larger parts of northern Yemen transformed because of these tensions that were exploited by uh, the government uh, that had uh, 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 sometimes very overt, sometimes quite secretive support from um, not only Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, so neighboring part, uh, partners, but also uh, the United States. And this, this uh, led to campaigns to uh, work on behalf of this larger global project, which included and ultimately led to conflicts with certain pockets of populations, especially in the north of country, along the borders of Saudi Arabia. And this is the story in which we begin to see the name Houthi uh, emerge. A, a man, a spiritual leader, um, uh, who also a member of parliament. Uh, actually, Yemen had a, uh, uh, won uh, legitimate elections in 1993. Uh, and then subsequently, uh, they have become quite uh, corrupted. But uh, it nevertheless brought to power uh, a parliament that, in theory, had a constitutional right to balance the role of Ali Abdullah Saleh, the, the dictator of uh, Western preference. And one of the uh, parliamentarians was this charismatic figure from the north whose area had been uh, suddenly subject, subject to uh, state expansion at the expense of how things were done in this part of Yemen for a long time. And that included uh, interacting with neighboring Saudi Arabia. Uh, just to the north, there's a boundary that um, is actually a disputed territory between Yemen and Saudi Arabia since 1934. 1934, with the help of Americans and British, uh, uh, Ibn Saud was able to acquire violently uh, a large part of northern Yemen, which in the, we call today, you can find in the, on the map, is Jizan, uh, Asir, and uh, Nahran, uh, Najran, sorry. And uh, those areas have been inhabited by uh, cultural Yemenis. Uh, also, in, um, uh, until very recently, large numbers of uh, Shia, especially Ismailis, lived in this region. And uh, they have been subsequently cleansed out by especially Muhammad bin Salman um, at, period, which is uh, the recent period that really starts the war in 2015. But why this is all important, it, it really, uh, uh, the attempt by Sana'a, the government uh, under al-Abdel to suppress this population up there who had now find themselves in a heavily militarized uh, border in which the Americans insist that the borders had to be uh, uh, very in a very expensive process of militarizing, securing, it up, up, upsets the traditional relationships that people on both sides of the borders had, which allowed for trade, allowed for flocks of animals to move back and forth. I'm sure in parts of Southern Africa, this is also an issue where traditional migratory patterns, uh, where water is, it's very important for these flocks to go to these water. And until 2000, 
uh, Saudi Arabia did not enforce a, a real border. It allowed these people from this region to move in and out. Now, at the behest of the Americans, they start to impose, along with their ally, Ali Abdullah Salam, this border. And this upset uh, the lives of these people in the north. And they were represented by this man named Houthi. He would ultimately um, take to the hills, so to speak. Um, his his uh, um, supporters, actually, his char charisma led to a broadening of his supporters to beyond just the community around him. It's often uh, claimed today in Western media that the so-called Houthi movement, again, named after a charismatic uh, figure who initiated this struggle from the region, are Zaidi incorrectly uh, framed as Shia, as if that somehow the Shia are similar to those Shia in Iran, who are, of course, are the boogeyman of the world uh, for the last uh, 30 years. Uh, uh, to the contrary, very different um, understanding of the relationship that they have with the Prophet and his family. Uh, so it, there's a very different Shia sect uh, with very, or actually no cultural connections to Iran and very few even with southern Iraq, where most 12 Shia go for pilgrimage to Najaf and elsewhere. So uh, this is a community that, again, starts with this Houthi charismatic figure. He's a religious scholar to an extent, also a political man, but also a man who represents his community. And the attempt to suppress him, leading to his death, um, would uh, allow for then his successors, members of his family, and those who had uh, worked with him to resist this state expansion process in the 19, late 1990s would actually expand beyond the region itself. So by the mid-2000s, this is an all-out war that Sana'a and Saudi Arabia, as allies, are trying to impose on this region to shut it down, because it's actually spreading now throughout the country. Even those who are, have nothing to con no connections to that geographic space, they have a connection with the esprit, if you will, the idea that there's something wrong with the government in Sana'a, and there's something wrong with their partnerships with Saudi Arabia. And so increasingly this pushes Saudi Arabia and their ally, or uh, sometimes ally, Ali Abdullah Saleh, and the Americans to uh, further uh, exploit the presence of this emerging um, and now quite dominant cultural phenomena of takfirism or Salafism. They used them successfully in 1994 civil war, and they've established a foothold in many communities throughout southern Yemen. And they're now going to be used as colonizers in these specific areas uh, that we're, I was referring to in the northern part, where the Houthis, so-called Houthis, emerge. And so it becomes even more heavy investment in, in sectarianism, which by uh, the mid to, to, by 2009, a war uh, it ends because basically the northern um, this northern population with an extended co coalition now in many parts of Yemen successfully defeat the Yemeni army, or the Yemeni army basically um, refuses to participate any longer. It's something to be debated about what actually is happening. There's fissures within the, um, let's say, infrastructure of the Yemeni army. Um, officers are refusing to participate in this war against fellow citizens. At the same time, Saudis, um, actually tried to uh, help uh, the cause and invade. And using their air force and their military artillery and their armor, they get heavily defeated. Very quickly, they decide to retract their quest to subordinate this part of Yemen on behalf of Ali Abdullah Saleh. This is 2009. 2010, 
the consequences of this long campaign to try to suppress on principle a very uh, uh, vigilant, very overtly nationalist Yemeni uh, resistance to the central state. They, they are very effective in um, selling their story as a national story in which a whole class, 80% of the population could embrace easily if they just simply avoided the sectarianism that was constantly being uh, promoted, uh, not only in uh, by the government in Sana'a, but by Saudi Arabia, Qatar, which has now invested, gotten involved in this, but also Western academia. And here you begin to see these, uh, this, this, this monster emerging in academic world where they, uh, the institutions that get funding from the Gulf, from uh, USAID, scholars who get grants to go and study exotic parts of the world uh, are expected to conform intellectually, uh, ideologically in a certain way. And they start promoting a certain uh, perspectives, understanding what's happening in Yemen. The same applies to journalists. And so it becomes now obvious to many in the outside world who follow somewhat what's going on is that this is a war between Sunni and Shia something that's very effectively being marketed as such. And because of the boogeyman Iran lurking there in the background, it's even easier to sell the story that Iran is trying to gain influence, just like with Hezbollah, mm -hmm. who had successfully defeated Israel in 2006. We have to go back with Hezbollah here in southern Lebanon, throwing the Israelis out of, of an occupation regime. The vast majority of the working poor of most most people in the Arab world supported Hezbollah in 2006. And so they would have to, uh, meaning they, uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, those who control media and, and their Western allies would go and work overdrive to try to induce a, a collective hatred for Hezbollah uh, through sectarianism. Yes. And this is the explosion of sectarianism that also ultimately translates into war in Syria. And by this beginning of this Arab Spring, uh, the uh, empowerment of Muslim Brotherhood assets, the Qatar, especially through Al Jazeera, uh, its uh, news channel that's quite famous. Uh, many people have become dependent on it from the English uh, channel, but the Arabic channel is incredibly bigoted and, and um, it's, uh, it's a very violent kind of language uh, geared towards uh, Shia or you know, significant portions of population in the Arab world who are not uh, Salafists or who are not um, proper Sunni Muslims. And that was an effective campaign in respect to uh, Hezbollah. It's You go now walk the streets here in Lebanon and you have a significant portion of the population who think that Hezbollah doesn't belong here, that they are Iranians, that they're Persians, they should go back to Iran. And that kind of discourse was effectively being used also in Yemen vis-a-vis -vis these peoples of the north. And uh, this is not, again, just in a domestic uh, campaign. This is used globally. So you'll see journalists writing in English for New York Times or increasingly now independently. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but they're, they're quite prominent. They're, they, they, they seem to have always uh, access. Their, their, their material can always end up circulating in AFP and Reuters. And you know, if you're an independent journalist, you know how hard it is to get your stories out. Uh, well, they seem to be always be getting their stories of it, which market Yemen as a Shia versus Sunni story, an Iran versus the rest of the world story. And so 2010 comes. Sorry, I'm taking a long time to answer this question. No, please, don't. don't just keep going. 
Yeah, 2010 comes. Um, they had already this long enduring uh, internal war against the uh, resilient mm. resistance to the central state. Uh, as we saw across the board, uh, financial collapse due to, uh, uh, to the financial crisis that happened and, and, and are constantly in cycles happening uh, in 2008. Of course, it was a global crisis that affected even the West, where we saw street uh, demonstrations for a while at least in some parts of the West. It also had induced a significant uh, financial uh, uh, downturn in, in the Gulf. Uh, because the Gulf countries are heavily he uh, leveraged, they borrow a hell of a lot of money off future productivity capacities to uh, do the kinds of projects they, they are, are familiar with, building glass towers in the middle of the desert, these uh, uh, useless uh, infrastructure projects, one of which was uh, um, to build a bridge to link, um, at that stage, they were very confident that Yemen was part of the larger scheme of what of the Arabian Peninsula to build a bridge between Yemen and Djibouti to link Africa with uh, Arabia. And this was a project that it envisioned, uh, and this was a project that was actually laid out and had been awarded to the bin Laden group. Uh, of course, one of the notorious sons of the patriarch ends up leading Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan on behalf of CIA. Uh, but anyways, the, the idea was to bring uh, the, the resources that are available, especially in highland Ethiopia, very rich country for farmland, for water. Uh, the, horn, the, horn, the Horn of the Africa. Horn. Yeah, uh, but especially highlands where they have, again, um, a large uh, tracts of field that were not uh, scientifically yet ex uh, exploited, um, that if you could put the resources together, get the um, international agencies that... Um, um, come to this part of the world. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, deeper story about how the world is functioning. Uh, many prominent actors in Ethiopia at the time become associated with, uh, with as a Tigray region, who, be, who are the dominant players after the 1993 war in Ethiopia it leads to this uh, consolidation of the state and Ethiopia's move towards the West, becoming very deeply entrenched with Clinton's administration in the 1990s. And these people like the head of the WHO today, Theodorus, I don't know his last name offhand, but he, he is of uh, this... Tedros. Yes, exactly. Um, he is part of that Tigrayan elite in Ethiopia who were mm. facilitating uh, the integration of Ethiopia in the larger, larger global economy, agreeing to building that dam that would be uh, that is inducing conflict with Egypt and Sudan uh, and Ethiopia over the damming of the Blue Nile, which was, would be the water source for Arabia. They would pipeline the water from uh, captured Blue Nile and through this bridge project, take it to Arabia through Yemen and make uh, it possible to develop the Red Sea coast of Saudi Arabia. Now, there's a project uh, that has quite received some uh, attention in financial media called 2030 Project that Saudi Arabia had envisioned making multiple, multiple Dubais on their uh, coast of Red Sea. And, and in, especially in a corner where Jordan, Israel, and Saudi Arabia share, the very tip of the Red Sea, they would uh, jointly develop this area for building casino towns and uh, kind of Las Vegas uh, kind of vision. Because again, these especially Saudi Arabia sees over the long term, it's running out of oil. It's, uh, it does not have the capacity to maintain uh, a, leader, a leadership role 
uh, in uh, shaping uh, oil prices. And when you don't have that ability to partner with America or empire in that way, you become then superfluous. You become um, uh, no longer useful. And I think um, people who understood global politics, there's a lot of sophisticated people in Saudi Arabia. Um, they know how the world's uh, political economy works, uh, that they knew that they had limited time to make an adjustment. One of those adjustments was, was to acquire assets that they did not have in their own, own territories. With their oil wells depleting, uh, with their population growing, uh, largely uneducated, um, uh, it became a, a question of life and death for them. And it so happened that there was this explosion induced uh, to a large extent by this partnership between Clinton, uh, the new American century neocons, and the Obama administration through Qatar uh, to induce revolutions in these um, either um, dying uh, military dictatorships like in Egypt or in Tunisia, um, or to uproot resilient uh, resistance, sources of resistance like Gaddafi's Libya or um, Assad's Syria, and um, it, to a certain extent control what was clearly happening in Yemen, which was getting out of control. Uh, to get rid of this Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was proving unable to actually um, deal with the problems that, uh, in many ways, his relationship with the West had induced in that country. Uh, there were, it was a very dangerous uh, period of uh, transition that would come from this uh, street protests that were taking place throughout Yemeni cities. Again, most of them were being led by people that uh, US intelligence out of the embassy did not know about or they knew about and they knew that they were not friendly to American interests. And they would ultimately help try to steer, as they did in other so-called Arab Spring revolutions, suppressing the one in Bahrain, suppressing the one in Oman. They don't want those governments gone. But certainly supporting the change of regime in Libya or in Syria. Um, and in the case of Yemen, they allowed Qatar to um, uh, an, an empowered um, Qatari-funded uh, uh, assets that were, took the form of personalities, which is an, also a very interesting story of the 2010s larger global south. I mean, we know if from Rwanda, for instance. I'm going to just bring in another Afri African story. Maybe some of your listeners are also critical of what happened in Rwanda, Uganda, uh, Burundi, uh, and East Congo. And you know they had their man um, who actually helped facilitate the uh, plundering of East Congo for years for this raw materials that were necessary for this shift to the uh, the revolution, the fourth reset, right? The battery, the cobalts, and all that stuff. And of course, East East Africa was destroyed uh, as a result with this Kagame becoming the hero, and he still is celebrated as the hero in in many parts of of Africa. Uh, uh, but And similarly, you would have such charismatic uh, young people, youthful people um, emerging in the Arab world. And in the case of Yemen, it was Tawakal Karman, who was even so, um, so charismatic and so much, gained so much support from the West to lead the revolution away from resistance to America and resistance to imperialism, to embracing globalization, embracing neoliberalism, free market economies, which is what she promoted. Uh, they, she even won the Peace Prize. Uh, she shared it with, I think, someone from West Africa that year. But the problem yeah, but is that so did, Obama, so did Obama. 
And Obama, yeah. So that's the whole point. Again, the, the idea is that you have this charismatic young figure who can be embraced by those people who are potentially could be steered because they're, they're from, from the working poor, right? And they see now somebody like their own. Here, Tawako Karma, she's, she's, she wears a, a head uh, scarf. Um, she's from Yemen. She's articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, just, it's just theater. It's, it's theater. Very cynical use of imagery that, again, contradicts mm-hmm. the... And this is what's I think there's an important strategic shift is we're going to contra- we're going to change a little bit this this uh, binary between East and West, right? The Orient versus the West. We're not going to play. We can actually find partnerships with uh, a new generation of Muslim leaders who can just like Osama um, bin Laden did for the very violent process of resisting the Soviet Union. We can transform the streets, a street that's very dangerous. We see that what happened Hezbollah, the street in Lebanon ultimately gathered force and defeated the strongest, so-called strongest army in, in the Middle East. And similarly, we can, if, if some of this street activism gets supported by money from Libya, for instance, or ends up finding a, a real um, patron in one of the other potential superpowers, which China, I don't think, will be ever participate in this process. They'll never fund insurgencies against the global economic system that's functioning. But the potential because they because they, because they are essentially technocrats exactly they've been they're, they're beneficiaries of the continued plunder mm. of africa i mean they're the ones who got all the cobalt right they're the ones who produce all mm. the products that we all use so they're they're partners in this uh, in this transitional economy from let's say the early uh, uh, 1970s uh, to to today and what happens next, right? The global reset or whatever these, these wackos are talking about. But they need, of course, compliance. And the, the, danger, the danger has always been indigenous resistance. It's the subaltern resistance. They, those damn lumpen proletariats who don't participate, you know, in, they, don't, they don't play by history's rules. I mean, even Marxists were frustrated by those who are at the very, very bottom because they can always change history. And so they, they, they try to preempt that with the Arab Spring, the discourse about the, the sectarianism, but also about liberalism, how important it is to be an open-minded, uh, 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 be proud to be a Muslim. You could be part of the West and still be a good, faithful Muslim, unlike those Shia who are, are, who are uh, Iranians and they don't belong in the Arab world. And so this was the discourse coming out of Tawakal Karman. So she wins a peace prize, but on the local level, she's a bigot. She is incredibly divisive and uh so i'm sorry i I wanted to bring that up you had a question no no sorry i i don't mean to interrupt but i I, what you you said you know be part of the west and it sounds as if it's this kind of like default position of american exceptionalism as somehow that's the that's the poster child Uh, which which is the poster child i'm sorry i didn't understand well, Being well, I'm saying West, that become, yes, yes, mm-hmm. and for some, for some, for, for some interesting reason, I'm wondering why that is the case. Why is that seen as the goal? Uh, for, for obviously, for uh, the let's say global empire, it's it's this is uh, it facilitates the integration of these economies. I mean, they become consumers. I mean, we we know that yeah. there's no longer any need to invest in infrastructure for anagram phones because we, everyone has a cell phone, and it's celebrated as freedom, right? Uh, mm. To a certain extent, yes, uh, some people are able to do things uh, in many parts of uh, Africa or the Arab world they couldn't do before. But at the same time, you're integrated now into a different kind of system that is evolving. 
And um, I, I do itemize this in my book uh, regarding how Yemen is incrementally being integrated in, the, uh, in a, this new kind of uh, a global economy by uh, microfinance, uh, for instance. Uh, they're being induced to get into debt through these uh, microfinance banks, which were all run by this uh, an outfit called Amal Bank, which was a subsidiary of Deutsche Bank. And, and in, in, the, in this period of transition that I just now reached, but in the 2010, 2011 period, where you have um, an outburst of, of fury in, in Yemen, and the streets have been ignited. And they, the, the West, with their Qatari allies, are desperately trying to harness this, to not let it get to the point where Yemenis and Yemen becomes again a source of defiance. If they are led by those kinds of people like mm. the Houthis, if, the, if that gets out of hand, then they will. Then Yemen is lost, and so and they were. So, so, mm -hmm. so, so, sorry, but sovereignty then is seen as a threat. Yes, real sovereignty, not one that is subordinate to IMF uh, decrees that you must shape your economy and uh, impose austerity, which was happening in Yemen, and this is one of the reasons why it exploded. Under Ali Abdullah Saleh, the last couple of years, there was this war, but it was also IM, they were borrowing money from IMF. It was very corrupt. There was millions of dollars going mm -hmm. into the bank accounts of certain um, political leads that were supporting yeah. this process. And the integration of the global economy meant that, for instance, the banking industry was being opened up. And, and, and there was more freedom of, of capital to flow. And uh, yeah. properties were being bought up in Sana'a. I mean, Qatar investors were buying up whole neighborhoods, knocking down old buildings, building these gated communities for their boys to come down and get uh, have sex and have experience with drugs and off their country during the winter seasons. Um, Dubai Ports World, working with Ali Abdullah Salah, had bought up most of the southern ports um, and we're going to develop those to help their expansion into controlling the West Indian Ocean, controlling the Red Sea, perhaps. Um, <clears throat> sorry, um, we're just now ending our fast here. Uh, Don is speaking. So, uh, <clears throat> um, where was I? So, yeah, so Ali Abdullah Saleh was imposing this austerity that the IMF was demanding. And this had, as we see everywhere in the world, austerity does not uh, produce political. Uh, allies and mm. there were people taking advantage even former allies of Ali Abdullah so including some of these military officials that I was referring to they saw a political opportunity to defy this now figurehead of the West this collaborator who is ruining the lives of so many people who are being forced to pay extra taxes they're losing access to land they're being forced to buy imported goods more and more and um, these campaigns like uh, microfinancing, where farmers who did still hold land and did still produce food for themselves were being encouraged to expand their projects and borrow a little bit of money. And as, as happened famously in India, and uh, I'm sure microfinance is all over parts of Southern Africa, people who can't pay back those debts, they lose their assets. They've been basically alienated from the land. So a new wave of migration to the cities, uh, Sana'a yeah, and are expanded. Uh, these these horrible uh, slums are emerging, and from these slums, of course, people are, are animated, and, and they're not entirely embracing this takfiri Salafism that's coming from uh, mm. uh, sources. And this is where the fear is that Yemen is going to slide out of uh, control. And so they impose, they basically uh, issue a decree in which they recognize the, uh, the legitimacy via the peace prize for this their their 
candidate of choice. Uh, and then they also say, okay, look, we're, we can't agree on this. There's, there's a potential for a civil war. Let's agree to an interim period. The UN comes in, the United States Embassy play with their NED, the National Endowment of Democracy, with, which is one of those covers, those fronts to infiltrate and train uh, future leaders. You have this problem all over Africa, all over my homeland, the Balkans, Middle East. Uh, there's a, yeah, I mean, they, they brought, they brought uh, prosperity and peace to Libya. Yeah, exactly, uh, and that's um, and that's the the model, working model, and and many Yemenis mm. can read through this, and so the pr problem is is that uh, okay, so everyone agrees we don't want civil war. It's clear that if if you don't get what you want, these especially Muslim Brotherhood types, that they're going to go to war. They've been already shooting at and assassinating people for the last five or six years. And this has been an overt threat. One of the generals of Ali Abdel Salah, who defected, joined the, the uh, Qatari uh, front, back front, the Muslim Brotherhood front, that we call the Islah Party, and basically threatened that we're going to uh, shoot, use our armor and our air force to take out anyone who challenges us. So everyone who comes to an agreement, they've been coerced to say, yes, let's have an interim period where we can basically um, have an interim government. Uh, we will then have elections at some point, and then we will allow Parliament to then uh, it starts the process of writing a new constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But this was all a front. This was all just a matter of buying time. And the person that was imposed, Mansour Hadi, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh's vice president for some 20 plus years, a very weak figure. Very not. There's no charisma in here. Him at all. Um, at some point, it was right. Uh, there was an outrage that this was their, the candidate of choice. And so basically the Americans and the UN said, okay, let's have a referendum. You can vote whether or not you accept him. But they did not have another candidate against him. They did not pit another candidate. It's just mm -hmm. him on the ballot. So there's no one person. He voted for himself. He would have been the interim president. I always say that if they put a donkey up as, this, as the alternative, they would have voted for the donkey. And um, th this is how, again, cynical uh, the, the West is mm. and empire. They, they promote democracy. They'll even use the facade of democracy. Oh, they had a referendum. He is the legitimate president now. And, and he's not. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't buy that. Uh, the, the whole democracy spiel. I've, I've kind of become uh, disillusioned by the whole idea. It's, uh, mm. it's more theater than anything else. Absolutely. But I want to ask you um, perhaps a question that that you can't answer, but <laughs> I guess it's rhetorical, but the amount of violence, war, conflict, death that has occurred in Yemen that I've only recently discovered um, is bewildering. It's, it's, it's of a level that is, is unimaginable. And yet all I see on Facebook is a flag of Ukraine. Yeah. Why, why does the West not care about Yemen? Well, remember, before Ukraine, there was the, the, the syringe of Corona, or there were other causes to, to celebrate and embrace. Um, and, and this is the, the power of, of uh, these five corporations that own media, let alone now the social media, which is, is, has been demonstrated over and over again. They're going to police content whenever it contradicts their interests. So, again, it's, it's an investment in not necessarily reporting, but under-reporting or deflecting. 
as much as reporting. We're not going to hear about Congo and yeah. eight, 8 million people dying because if there's a, an impassioned reaction to that and you actually see youth getting involved and in, you know, um, having Bono sing a song on behalf of East Congo, <laughs> in theory, that changes things, right? When, when Western uh, middle-class kids pick up a cause, which they're often encouraged to do so, um, that that's a powerful mechanism of social uh, mobilization in theory. But if indeed, uh, if they started to celebrate the Yemen uh, story and, and to, uh, to, uh, to publicize what is going on from day one of this campaign, which starts in March 2015, after they basically had enough with this um, uh, vice president who was elected by no one, it was for two years initiating uh, integration in a more rapid uh, fashion to the global economy. He signs into the WTO. He rips up former contracts, which pisses off D Dubai Points World. He allows for uh, other um, uh, partners to start basically acquiring state assets, lands, uh, even stealing lands from people who claimed ownership to them to really, really wrap it up, r ratchet up the process of globalization of integrating Yemen into the economy. And so there was, by 2014, end of 2014, he was arrested. They basically said his government no longer exists. He even signed off and, and resigned when he was under custody. And then still the West refuses. This is their candidate. They need him to pursue the what he mm. was pursuing for that two-year period. And that almost that original, that ultimately results in, okay, well, we're going to have to militarily impose. We're going to get the UN to sign off on this, and we're going to reinstate the legitimate government under Hadi. And that's where then the United Nations, with China and Russia on board, um, pushing uh, this agenda, which will use regional powers to um, basically help police their own neighborhood. This is the kind of rhetoric you start, to see, you start hearing, especially about Rwanda as well, right? They're going to raise an East African force to police their own. You're going to have it's globalist propaganda. Globalist propaganda. And, and mm -hmm. so that's the only time you would hear anything about Yemen at that interim phase, that there was a justified war to reinstate a legitimate leader. The problem is that the images that started coming back from this first couple of days of war were, were war crimes. There was mass murder. They were, they were literally trying to, to shock and awe the population, destroy infrastructure, and make it clear that if they were to continue to resist, that they would start to starve to death. They were threatening starvation within the first couple of weeks. They were using double-tapped um, uh, strategies um, to kill as many people as possible in these horrific uh, examples of mass murder. They blew up infrastructure. They destroyed uh, water processing plants. They destroyed electricity uh, plants, food uh, uh, factories. Again, that was the point. There was this, we're going to force you to, to capitulate. And everyone in that coalition, from Saudi Arabia to Qatar to UAE to Morocco and other countries that were part of it, at least initially, uh, again, pressured by the Obama administration under the direction of Susan Rice, who's notorious in Africa for yeah. her, her role in, in many horrible events that are happening in, in East Africa, from Victoria Nuland, who is responsible with, with Ukraine, yeah. with yeah, some power who is also, I mean, they were all part of the Obama administration and they're all back in the Biden administration. And this is important for where we go from there. So when, uh, when, when, did you say that? Sorry, did, did, you, did you say the Biden administration? They are back in with the Biden administration. All these oh, three yeah. women I listed okay. who were yeah. part of the Obama administration who initiated this war in Yemen. 
to force uh, uh, back this illegitimate uh, figurehead who was signing away on behalf of Yemen as a sovereign leader, the, all its rights to all its natural resources, mm. which include water uh, offshore, tons of oil and gas that shares the same oil fields as Somalia, uh, the fisheries, which is a huge business that no one talks about in context of conflict. Uh, I'm sure many countries in Africa are very familiar with the plundering of their waters by Spanish, Chinese uh, uh, fishing fleets. Uh, also the mines and, of course, onshore oil and gas. All this was being sold for pennies on the dollar to uh, very corrupting uh, institutions. OMV is an Austrian company, Hunt Oil, Total, French oil company, a lot of Chinese, Sinopec. Uh, they were all making, they were all expecting to make a killing. In the meantime, those three uh, countries in the Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and UAE, uh, who joined in this coalition. They were doing so for very different reasons. They were doing so, one, to acquire Yemen's assets, its geography, Saudi Arabia, um, especially once an, uh, another alternative access point to the larger global economy. It's somewhat hemmed in by the Straits of Hormuz and by the Bab al-Mandab, where, where Yemen and, and Djibouti meet. And, and more importantly, they wanted their uh, oil and their uh, gas. Uh, because 2030, their vision to transitioning to a post-oil yeah. economy was not possible unless they continued to produce oil and gas. And they could borrow more money off the now Yemen's huge potential for uh, oil production, gas production. So they were hoping to win the lion's share of the spoils of, of a short war, a war that would last after a week two weeks at most, because they know those Yemenis. They know anyone who would be bombed from the air and they would see such destruction, anyone would give up. That's certainly what their population would do. Um, the problem is that the Yemenis did not give up. And more importantly, they're, they're competing with Qatar and Saudi, uh, UAE, which have similar kinds of ambitions. Qatar thinks that the, since they have their Islam assets uh, all spread throughout the country. They had basically controlled the Hadi government, that basically Yemen was, by extension, their sphere of influence. UAE wanted to desperately stop that. UAE, which had, again, before 2010, had these big contracts that were all ripped up by this interim government. Uh, they had lost suddenly their access to, uh, to uh, Yemen's assets, to East Africa, which they all had in envisioned expanding into. Uh, and so they basically started to fight a war within a war. So uh, these uh, three major participants in the coalition um, ha did not send their own troops. They had their planes in the air, but their, their, the troops that they represented them were mercenaries, mostly from Sudan or from Chad or from Afghanistan or, or uh, other parts of, of uh, the Arab world. And so they fought with each other. And this is why the war yeah. basically becomes now a, a, a three-pronged war, where there was really not a, an effective coalition. And the people of northern Yemen are going to resist. Yeah, yeah that's, that's I was about to ask that. Uh, so it sounds as if what you're saying, uh, that the people of Yemen are profoundly resistant uh, to sort of the globalist attempts to infiltrate their own sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And they've shown over and over again the capacity to resist, to organize accordingly. And now, what the, one of the big ironies is that the army that was the biggest army under Ali Abdel Saleh in the uh, Arab, not the Arab world, but certainly in Arabia, 
Uh, most of their air force and their capacity for defending against uh, air attacks were destroyed very quickly. But its land uh, forces turned on a dime and became loyalists to the resistance. So you have now hundreds of thousands of well-armed troops, well-trained troops, and more importantly, engineers. Now, they will play an important part in this war because they're the ones who are now with very limited resources. They're going to shoot down a couple of drones. They're going to now uh, reverse engineer what they capture in terms of technology from this well-equipped uh, coalition armies who have been spending billions of dollars buying American weapons or weapons from Turkey or weapons from China. So when they get capture this stuff, and they're able to capture a lot of equipment because the soldiers who are fighting them are not from Yemen. They're not, they have no stake. They, they get a, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month, they're promised. They rarely get paid. They, they're poor living conditions. They have no incentive to die in front of very determined Yemenis. So this is one of the, 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 the crises of the war for the coalition, for America, is that they just don't have people on the ground fighting a serious war against the resistance. So it's basically an air campaign, which is devastating. It's, it's just, again, destroyed infrastructure. It makes it difficult to capture large tracts of flat territories, which uh, many parts of where the oil is, is basically the flatlands. So it's easy to control those areas, but the, the, the whole 23 million people who live under the resistance, this government called Ansar Allah, an alliance that has integrated the mil military, not only have they been, uh, been able to resist by staying in the mountains and, and protecting their families, feeding themselves with a minimal amount of uh, agriculture, but they're now mm -hmm. using the technology that's been used against them to produce drones. They've produced ballistic missiles. And for the last five years, at least, it's been a seven-year war, it's in the eighth year now, but at least for five years, they've been firing ballistic missiles into Saudi Arabia with great precision, blowing up infrastructure. They don't attack civilians. This is very important for on their part. They don't do what the Saudis do or what the Emiratis mm. do or Qataris do. And they um, make it very costly. It has been an incredibly expensive war for Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's been calculations two years ago that they spent at least $300 million a day and that you, you do the numbers. They have to borrow ha hand over fist. They have to sell their resource. They've been now putting as issuing IPOs for Ramco and for the various other uh, residual uh, in industries, whether it be pipelines. They're selling off their assets left and right, just trying to, to keep cash to not only pay for this war, to repair all the infrastructure, but to also suppress the information about this war. If mm. news gets out that they're losing this war, that there are missiles blowing up refineries, and, and, and water treatment plants. Then the project of trying to get outside investors to come and invest in 2030 to make Saudi Arabia, help Saudi Arabia pay for that transition will be impossible. And this is a message that Ansar Allah, the resistance in North Yemen have given, also made to UAE. They've sent occasionally a drone, quite spectacularly dropping it into an airport or into some refinery. There's an explosion, it gets in the news for a day or two. And it's a warning that we will destroy an economy that's based entirely on hype. The only reason why Dubai survives is because the rest of the world sends their money there. Nigerians mm. or Indians or from people from Hong Kong or uh, uh, people from Russia, they, they, they want a safe haven for their money, for their, their earnings, and they send it to UAE. Uh, it's uh, just, to be, just to be clear, yeah, just to be clear, uh, we are talking about 
um, the elites. We're not talking about people on the ground because people on the ground in all these countries just want to be peaceful and be left alone, right? Well, that's uh, to a large extent. Okay. Campaigns, uh, media campaigns, the incitement of hatred for the other, whether it be Shia other or peasant other or whatever, black person, excuse me, white person, um, that certainly has an impact to a certain extent. As I mentioned here in Lebanon, people who should know better and who have shared the same cause and the same interest now do speak very hatefully about Hezbollah and about Shia. Mm. And, um, and I think that that's the case with Yemen, uh, especially uh, amongst a, a younger generation. Now, they're, they're not fighting. They're not going to go and pick up a Kalashnikov and go fight their so-called mm. internal enemy. So it's not a civil war in that sense. It's a civil war at, yes. the, uh, at the emotional level now. Many of those yes, people okay, who are I'm, leading, I'm following. Who, many of those people mm -hmm. who are uh, leading the campaign against the Ansar law, who are uh, they, you, you, they're, they, they're fellows, they're in the think tanks, they're getting degrees now in the West, uh, and they're very publicly demonstrating they have de distanced themselves from Yemeni culture, at least traditional Yemeni culture, that they're Westernized, right? So they'll, they'll, and they have an audience through media. And so they've been actively involved in also not preaching the cause until recently. Now, this is why we're now beginning to see a little bit more attention to, uh, to Yemen. Mm -hmm. One, it's impossible to ignore that there are hundreds of thousands of people who have died. It's impossible to ignore this war also because the countries that have been waging this war are economically destroyed by it. They haven't won the war. The war is now with these ballistic missiles and these drones. They they're literally blew up a refinery next to an F1 racetrack in Jeddah. Gee. We, with Lawrence, Lance Hamilton or whatever his name, and all these people who are on Netflix now, and you know, there was literally a bomb that blew up the refinery across the road from it. And so um, they can't avoid it anymore. Uh, now they have to change the narrative. And they already started uh, late last year by actually using the UN, again with Russian and Chinese support, calling Ansar Allah uh, a terrorist group which gives them the uh, ability to uh, deny them access to negotiations, to diplomacy, which was in, in backdoor, um, they were, they were, there were negotiations, especially for exchanging soldiers for injured and, and, and POWs. That was always ongoing. So there was dialogue between uh, the so-called coalition in Oman. Oman. Omani Sultan was very generous to allow for a space for Yemenis and the rest of the world to negotiate these kinds mm. of things of war. But um, Yemen has been now enduring five years of embargo, an um, airtight embargo in which nothing comes in unless it's uh, filtered. And there have been some cases where fuel uh, ships, food ships, which if largely with uh, already outdated food supplies, this is the most cynical, and people in Africa know this very well, right? They get aid, it gets sent from Europe or from the United States, it's mm. already outdated. In the case of food, there is food that comes in, but it's often filled with animal, you know, bugs, and it's, it's something that you can't actually eat anymore. The same with pharmaceutical products, that they already have reached their deadline, they're dangerous, and the mm. third world is being dumped with this crap, and now they have to spend the money to actually um, somehow destroy. And so Yemenis have been uh, screwed by the global community, by the United Nations, who are, who are not uh, a, a, a partner in peace. Uh, they are very much partisan in this. They've well, constantly they made- They don't care about anybody. Yeah, but they don't really care about anybody, actually. Yeah. yeah, and it's very lucrative, right? Because that means they're mm. smuggling. 
So if uh, when they're smuggling, uh, there until recently you could actually still there was a Baskin Robbins ice cream store in Sanaa. I remember when they opened it, uh, but apparently they were still getting some truck delivering on occasion a couple of flavors of ice cream for those poor people in Sanaa uh, through smuggling. And of course they paid a hefty price for it. But uh, so there is business to be made in war, obviously from selling weapons, but also from yeah, the sure. smuggling and all these kind of things. And black that, market. Mm. The black market. And so a lot of these cynical players uh, actually don't want to see the war necessarily end. Uh, but what's happening now is that these countries in the north are having facing serious political problems. And one of the biggest problems is that of Qatar. Going back to Qatar, it was an asset of the Clintonites, the new, uh, the, the, the new American century uh, neocons, like Robert Kagan, who was married to Victoria Nuland, who induced the Maidan events of 2014. And, uh, and Obama people. Uh, during Trump, because he came from a whole different universe, um, very much a gangster like everyone else, but he was a much more open mouth, open mic kind of gangster. And he had some- Shoot, shoot from the hip. He shot from the hip and he, was, he understood how politics worked, but he understood it from his perspective as a property developer in New York, in Las Vegas, which you have to be an absolute gangster in order to be in that business and to be successful. And he had done business with UAE before. And so he was uh, much more comfortable listening to what the UAE was telling him about how this war, he inherits a war in many parts of the Arab world, right? Syria, Libya, uh, and Yemen. And so what he basically says, I see a business opportunity. I'm going to um, um, help my, those people who put me the power, uh, the arms industry in America who are competing with the British and the Canadians and the, uh, the Swedes we're all getting, uh, selling weapons to these coalitions. I'm going to basically say to Saudi Arabia, you will get exclusively American um, uh, war equipment, and you're going to pay cash for it. And he even said this on public once, charismatically saying, hey, I called the king. Hey, king, you know you won't survive for two weeks without us. You better bring up and pay the cash. Right? This is what he said, like a, like a, like a, uh, a gangster. A gangster, right? And so this is how it worked. And one important consequence of this is that, that Qatar, uh, an asset of the Clintonites, who had been, again, playing this uh, uh, cultural politics for many, many years, um, would be the odd man out. And you saw the result in 2017 when uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE, who are arch enemies of, of Qatar, and Qatar can induce conflict in their countries. They, they did so in Bahrain, and there was a potential for that in UAE even during the Arab Spring. And the UAE especially is terrified about having people rise mm -hmm. up against, uh, because their ruler family are not legitimate Muslims. They, and they just made an agreement with Israel uh, earlier this year, if you recall. And uh, so uh, under Trump, Qatar is pushed out. Uh, they, they are desperately trying to hang, hang on to their assets in Yemen, but they are losing out to this now emerging two-pronged struggle that between UAE and Saudi Arabia, again, for the same uh, Yemeni assets. They want exclusively mm. whatever Yemen has to offer. Uh, but they have been able to exclude Qatar. Now, what has happened is that Qatar has been re rehabilitated by the, the arrival of the old guard, uh, Samantha Power, uh, Susan Rice, Victoria Nuland, under a Biden administration. They're all the same people who started the war in the first place. They're the ones who oversaw the Arab Springs of 2011, 2012. And um, that means that uh, without, 
without an exact too much of exaggeration that uh, one of those at least one of those other two uh, members of the coalition are going to see a dramatic downturn in their uh, relations with the Americans and most likely see predatorial kind of um, domestic investment in, in domestic politics whether it's uh, through Muslim Brotherhood assets on the ground or allowing for other scenarios to happen, either UAE or Saudi Arabia are going to find themselves in big trouble because they're both hemorrhaging money still. While oil prices have gone up, Saudi Arabia has lost the ability to produce hundreds of thousands of barrels a day because of these attacks. Uh, they, in the, in the uh, last couple of years, they, they had to buy off in the open market additional barrels in order to put two million barrels and they don't have the ability to produce and when their assets have been attacked for five years and and their pipeline systems and their refineries have been um, destroyed or partially mm. destroyed um, this could be an, a window of opportunity as we now see with a, a qatar very openly embracing with the biden administration the ukrainian cause while the two other oh, powers have remained globalist yeah and so Saudi Arabia and UAE officially have either remained quiet about this or have suggested that they can partner with Russia and China and India um, in what is being marketed as a potential um, emerging uh, binary, right? A, a, two, uh, a world that's divided. Multipolar. Multipolar world, which I have my suspicions about. Because again, I don't trust. Uh, I don't trust that China is at all invested in defying this process. They have benefited from this uh, transition from the 1970s onwards, when Nixon went and Ken Kissinger went to China and recruited the Chinese against the Soviet Union, mm. um, and they've been partnering ever since. You can, every single mm. uh, high-tech thing that we we use, and even the cheap clothes that we we wear, comes from China. And so they're part of this global economy. They're beneficiaries of this global reset that has been going on mm. for, for a while. But the, the point is, is ultimately that we're going to see Yemen suddenly taking a new prominence because Qatar is going to be brought back and, and um, maybe um, um, highlighted platforms to be the uh, one to resolve this conflict, this conflict that is now suddenly a humanitarian catastrophe again. Angela Jolie, for the first time, went down to Yemen and just sat with some, um, you know, skeleton children for, you know, for a moment, uh, looking at a book together. And now, and then, and then take them, and then take them home with her. <laughs> well, I don't think she really likes those kids. Yeah, those kids were. A little bit, <laughs> they definitely did not benefit from um, that those swoop. Yeah, but uh, but the point is, is that the UN uh, has now finally. Uh, uh, bringing to the forefront a Yemeni issue. Now, mm. it's gone, gotten so desperate for those who are still in this war and who are now being openly blamed. And in the media, you'll notice it's Saudi's war, right? It's the Saudi yeah. war of Yemen. And that's very unambiguous. There is no ambiguity at all in this week. It, it is Saudi's now responsibility, even though it's not. And mm. uh, they're now going to have to bear the burden of the responsibility of 377,000 dead another 4 million, 5 million potentially starving in the next couple of years. And so that's huge pressure on a, on a regime that, again, seems to be expendable at this stage, just like Ali Abdullah Saleh was in 2010. They haven't been able to keep their house in order. They are no longer paying their bills. 
Uh, and uh, if you can't borrow money, if you've already um, um, sold off your assets and, there's, and you haven't won that war, you're no longer useful to us. You're now a liability. The mm -hmm. new regime in power in Washington, D.C. have very reliable allies who have very sophisticated media infrastructure with Qatar. Maybe they can partner with the UAE, um, who will cooperate because they've signed a peace treaty with Israel uh, in, in the beginning of the year. And so uh, it, 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 we, we are seeing a change. And uh, we've now just started Ramadan. Now, the Ansar law, after they had very spectacularly attacked six, six or seven cities in Saudi Arabia, had then uh, immediately afterwards said, let's have a ceasefire. You can't sustain this. We're reaching mm -hmm. out to you and let's have a ceasefire. We'll give you three days. Saudis didn't respond. They continued bombing. But then they initiated their own uh, with the UN participating in this, sitting down, there's this nice Scandinavian blonde-haired guy who has blonde eyebrows and it looks rather weird. And he just sits there and we are now going to negotiate and hopefully bring a ceasefire. And so indeed, as of yesterday, the beginning of Ramadan, in theory, there was a ceasefire. Now, there have been reports of Saudi uh, artillery firing into Yemen. Uh, I guess they're not major enough to make the news, but it is interesting that finally Saudis agreed to not just a prisoner exchange, but also to an actual ceasefire. Now, that may be a reprieve for them, but I think we need to read a little bit more deeper, more deeply at this. We must understand what's actually happening in the relationship between rivals in the region and how that plays itself out in these narratives about what Russia is doing to Ukraine, what's happening as a result with this incredible um, uh, speculative uh, exploit, exploitation of pricing uh, of, from foods to energy. Uh, we don't have food shortages in the world. This is, this is all something that's going to result it's propaganda. in- It's propaganda, it's very profitable. Mm. It's gonna force mm. us to uh, establish new regimes of control and of regulation that would not be possible, perhaps, when there was not a food crisis or an energy crisis, right? Whether it's the, um, we're going to now embrace new kinds of energy sources. I doubt that because yeah. that's not sustainable either. It's very profitable, though, to, to promote batteries. Africa. But will crises are, yeah, crises yeah. are profitable. Yeah. And, and we are obviously, we're being told we're, we were in a COVID one, now we're in this mm. one that's induced by Russia, which has And then it's also, climate, climate, and it keeps, keeps yeah. going. Yeah. And so mm. this, this has a, a Yemen part of this. Uh, there is a role for Yemen in this. And it's largely because, and again, this is not planned. This is a contingency. Yemenis resisted. If Yemenis capitulated after one week of shock and awe, then it would be a different story. Yeah. Uh, but Yemen's, Yemenis did not stop. They are firing back their own technology now. And, uh, and so whether or not they will ever be a unified Yemen again, I doubt it. I don't, I'm almost certain it will never will be. It, it demonstrates over and over again for all of us who are living, um, either are from the global south or living um, the lives of the global south, that if we work together, if we're able to avoid falling for these media traps of hating each other because of our different tribes or different uh, skin mm -hmm. colors or different religions, that we are the biggest threats to this process, that we actually have the capacity, even in an isolated place like Yemen, to resist the world's most expensive armies. Even, the, even here in Lebanon, 4,000 men, dedicated men who had nowhere else to go, could actually throw out the occupiers with uh, relatively unsophisticated weapons. 
So it's over and over again, we have recourse, us, all of us. We don't have to fall for the, the, the mongering of, of doom. We don't have to mm. capitulate to this idea that there's these great guys sitting there in Davos who are controlling everything. And yes, they are trying to, and they're much more successful these days than the Rockefellers before them. Uh, but it does not yet mean that we are, we're, we're done, right? We, Yemen has demonstrated we, do, we don't have to capitulate. If we just stick together and, and stick to I our agree. family. Yeah. I really do appreciate your time. I think I'm going to have to invite you back because there's a lot more that I'd like to ask you. Um, I if, would love it. So, yeah. so I'll, stay, I'll stay in touch with you. But until then, uh, God bless you. Thank you so much for, for joining me in the trenches, Issa Blumi. And to you too, my brother. It's good to have you in the trenches. It's always important to have someone that got your back. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.